Good morning. Welcome to Cross Point. We're glad you're here. If you're a visitor with us this morning, I want to let you know there, there's these cards in the backs of the chairs in front of you. And if you haven't filled one of these out yet, we want to encourage you to do so. It's a way for us to connect with you and you to connect with us and also to even give us some feedback and some prayer requests. And we pray over these each week if you submit prayer requests. There's also a form just for prayer requests if you're not a visitor. So I wanted to draw your attention to that. Uh, the best thing you can do with this card if you're a visitor is take it to this kiosk afterwards, and someone will be there, likely Clay or someone else. And uh, Clay, are you going to be there? Clay will be there. It won't be someone else. It'll be that guy right there in that fabulous blazer. He'll be right there at the kiosk, and he will, um, he'd love to connect with you, get you a little folder, let you know what's going on around here, what we believe. Uh, we believe that if you are a professing Christian, being a member of a local church is not an optional thing. And so we take it very seriously to try to get you connected and let you know what we believe so that you can make that decision that you need to make. For the last six weeks, we have been considering what Scripture says about the power and the authority and the responsibility of the local congregation. And this week, we're going to be making a shift back towards some expositional preaching with some practical application as we enter into the holiday season and Advent. It'll be here before we know it. Uh, we're entering into Thanksgiving month and then Advent, and so that'll all be here quickly. And then what we're going to do is in 2019, we'll pick that series back up possibly and continue to build on the foundation uh, that we laid over the last six weeks. But we're hoping for some timely expositional preaching. We're, we're used to verse-by-verse -verse preaching here at Crosspoint. And so we're going to get back to looking at verses and preaching through uh, those verses uh, here for the next little bit. And we hope you're encouraged by that as we go into this holiday season, which is crazy that it's already here. Our overview uh, for the month is this. Today we're going to consider Psalm 19 and some timely encouragement from Psalm 19. Next week we'll hear from Bill Ruth about what it means to be a deacon in the local church. And then two weeks after that we'll have Kai Martin, a pastor from our Rockwall Church plant, uh, here preaching. He was here a few weeks back and it was a joy having him here. Let's pray and we will dig in together to Psalm 119 this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning. You are great and greatly to be praised. As we have already sung this morning... Uh, you are very good to us, and your ways are higher than our ways. This morning, we want to pray specifically for another church, another local church, our brothers and sisters in Christ at Southwood Christian Church, and we pray for Elder Harry Oakley, and pray that they are enjoying you this morning, that they are gathering, looking into the Word and seeing great things about you, singing about you, and enjoying Christ in each other. And Lord, we pray that this morning. And we continue to pray that you would kill any spirit of competition that exists between churches as we are all on the same team. Help them to flourish. Um, help them to not have enough seats and parking because there's so much healthy and good ministry and connection going on in that church. Lord, we also want to pray for a couple of our own members, Kevin and Kendall McDonald, um, as they have welcomed their new baby, Faith Lynn Nicole, into the world. But now she's having some, some health issues and they're back in the hospital within, the, within three weeks. And so we pray for, for healing there, Lord. We pray that you would... Um, Help them to be tended to well in the hospital. Lord, this morning, we humble ourselves before you. Um, if we dig into this psalm, I think the way we're supposed to, uh, we cannot help but humble ourselves before you, to cast ourselves at your feet and to ask for something that can really only come from you. We love you very much. I pray that you would, you would help me to be steady, stable, and to speak what you want me to speak for the good of your people and for your glory. Lord, this time is yours. No one here loves this church more than you do. And I pray that that would help us this morning to focus on what you say. 
We love you and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'd like to encourage you to turn to Psalm 119. Turn to Psalm 119. And we're going to be looking particularly at two verses right in the middle of this big old psalm. We're going to be looking at verses 36 and 37. So turn to Psalm 119. We'll be in 36 through 37. Before we look at those two verses, I want to try to explain some context because the context of Psalm 119 is very important, especially with the two verses we're looking at. This psalm that we're looking at this morning is the longest chapter in our Bibles with 176 verses. And the context of those 176 verses make verses 36 and 37 pretty remarkable. Some of you are familiar with Psalm 119, as it's been studied by many. The psalm is structured so that each section coincides with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what we see in this psalm is a fair amount of intentionality, to, to proclaim something that's true with some good order and some good structure. And here's the thing about this psalm. It's a dedicated and meticulous labor of love. You, you can almost picture like a man sitting down and writing a love song for the one he loves. If he writes it in five minutes, he'll probably get no points, right? He'll get no brownie points for writing, you know, the roses are red, violets are blue kind of thing. But, but, it, but if, a, if he really wants to sit and write a song for, for the person who he loves... He will take his time. That's what has happened in Psalm 119. It's a meticulous labor of love. And the aim of its love is the word of God. This psalm is almost like a love song for God's word. It's like a love song that expresses and explains and holds high how beautiful and how beneficial and how good the word of God is. C.S. Lewis wrote, it's a pattern a thing done like embroidery, stitch by stitch, through long, quiet hours, for love of the subject and for the delight in leisurely and disciplined craftsmanship. Like a master craftsman, the psalmist takes his time with this masterpiece, and his aim is to clearly express the abundance of love that he has for God's word, for God's precepts, for God's counsel, for God's commands, for God's law. He uses every different word that exists to express love for the word of God. Every way that the word of God is expressed, he includes it in this psalm. He believes that God's ways are perfect, deserving of this song, the longest in the canon, so that God's testimonies are rightly revered and held in proper honor and esteem. That's our context, a love song that expresses how good God's word is. So now, with that context, let's look at these two verses, 36 and 37. It says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. That's it. That's our focus this morning. I'm going to read it again because that's where we are parking and that's where we're staying for the duration of our time. In these two little verses, in the middle of this love song for the word, he says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. It's an interesting couple of verses. The guy who clearly has an intensely high regard for the word of God experiences this very honest moment in the middle of the psalm where he essentially says this, God, I know that your word is perfect. God, I know that it's so good. 
And God, sometimes I'm not feeling it. You see what he's doing here? Can you identify with that? You ever had moments or days like that? God, I know that your ways are perfect. I know that you're perfect. I'm not feeling it. That's the honesty that I hope we can have this morning because it's the honesty of the psalmist. Your word is good, but sometimes I'm just not feeling it. Sometimes, as good as as I know your word is, my heart is actually inclined to other things that are not your ways and not your word. It's a beautiful honesty that we see from the psalmist. It almost looks like these two verses are out of place. If we're really honest, it almost looks like they're out of place. We could, as observers, look at the psalmist and say, well, if you really thought the word of God was good, as good as you say, then you wouldn't need to have your heart inclined to it. Right? Could we say that? Like, if you, if you really spent 176 verses talking about how good it is and you really thought it, then you wouldn't need an outside force to take your heart and incline it towards this thing that's good if it's really good. It can almost seem like it's out of place. If you really thought it was good, you would just want to read your Bible and do what it says. But is that your experience? Can we be honest this morning? Is that your experience? If you really thought it was good, you would just read your Bible and you would just do what it says and you would love God's word and you would never struggle with obedience. The psalmist is taking his guard down and it allows us, if we join in the psalm, to do the exact same thing this morning. If we said such things in our hearts, we would not only be accusing the psalmist, but we would be accusing ourselves. Sometimes we don't feel like yielding to the word of God. I'm one of your pastors. Sometimes I don't feel like yielding to the word of God. It is a struggle in my flesh that is not abnormal for me. Sometimes I don't feel like yielding to the word of God. I think that's the case for all of us. Our spiritual lives dry up. Sometimes we go through seasons where we find ourselves in a spiritual desert. Sometimes we go through hardship and heartache. And though we know that God's ways are the best ways, we choose other ways. Rather than sitting down with God in his word, we would rather do maybe anything other than that when we're not feeling like it. If you're sitting here today and you've never experienced this crazy anomaly of not wanting to obey God and not wanting to go to his word even though you know it's right, you will experience it one day. And if you have experienced this or you are experiencing this, the spiritual staleness or a spiritual desert, take your direction from the psalmist. When we sing and pray the psalms, we are invited in to proclaim what the psalmist proclaims and to appeal with the psalmist to God. So let's look at what the psalmist's appeal to God is. What is the appeal in those darker seasons of the psalmist's walk? Incline my heart to your testimonies. To incline the heart is to actually take it when it's bent this way and do whatever it takes to bend it back towards God's testimonies. The psalmist is essentially saying, God, I need your help. As good as your testimonies are, my heart will not be inclined to meditate on them and obey you if you do not incline my heart to do so. Have you ever prayed such a prayer? Have you ever prayed for your prayers? That's kind of what we're talking about here, right? Praying for your prayers or 
praying for your quiet time, praying for your devotionals, praying for what goes on in your heart and in your mind as you sit here and listen to the preached word. You might be sitting here thinking, hey, this is, this is convenient because I don't feel like listening to you right now, Pastor Scott. It's, it's an honesty here. Have you prayed that? God, I need your help. As good as your testimonies are, my heart won't want to do them unless you bend my heart to do them. I won't have a love for your ways if you don't bend my heart to have love for your ways. It's so honest, and it's so humble, and I'm hoping this morning that, it, that it's sort of disarming for us. God, I can't make myself want more of you, but you can make me want more of you. We've said it before, and we'll say it again. God can handle your honesty. God can handle your honesty, and he prefers it. He's not looking down from heaven at the psalmist right here and saying, how dare you? He's not on his heavenly throne looking down at the psalmist and saying, I gave you a perfect law, and how dare your heart not just want to immediately do it? How dare you ask me for help? No, God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The psalmist knows his limitations and he is honest and humble about his sinful heart. And he knows that even when he loves other things more than God, that God is the one who has the ability to bend his heart and to incline his heart to God's plans. The second thing, the psalmist here in these verses doesn't only reveal that his heart is sometimes not inclined to God's testimonies, he reveals what it is inclined to. His heart is inclined to selfish gain. Look at what it says. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. He knows that when his heart inclines away from God's testimonies, it inevitably inclines towards self. That's what happens when we move away from God, God's plan, God's commands, God's design, God's law, God's testimonies, inevitably you end up focused right here on self. I have experienced it time and time again. A selfishness. He knows that that's the way he inclines. And this selfishness that's spoken of here, this inclination towards self, the selfish gain, is actually the word which refers to covetousness. Now, I want to broaden our definition of covetousness a little bit because sometimes we think covetousness is something we're only guilty of when we want what our next-door neighbor has. That's true, but it's not only limited to your next-door neighbor. It's also limited to anything you set your eyes on that you want and don't have when you think that thing will actually make you happy. Covetousness is an attitude that can exist even within the believer that says the grass is always greener on the other side. My life will, will be happier if I, if I just had my life more like someone else's life. A covetous heart that's inclined towards selfish gain, though it looks like it's focused on everyone else and their stuff and their life and their experiences, is actually incredibly self-centered. The covetous heart is incredibly self-centered and the psalmist is familiar with it. This covetousness could be what, considered what happens when the heart rejects what God wants because the heart wants what it wants when it wants it. Have you ever experienced that? Where the heart wants what it wants when it wants it, or perhaps the heart has no idea what it wants, so it just keeps looking. Anywhere but God's word. Anywhere but with the Lord. It just keeps looking. Will that make me happy? 
Will that make me happy? Will that bring me some fulfillment? Will that bring me a little bit of peace in this season that's so difficult? And it just keeps looking because it wants what it wants when it wants it, or it's not sure what it wants, so it just keeps looking. Covetousness. It focuses on all those other things. It's interesting, the 10th commandment, which is included in God's law, the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Anything, that's a thorough commandment. Anything that's not yours that you think will actually make you happy in those moments where you are being having a covetousness, self, self-inclined heart, you're not allowed to want those things. You're not supposed to covet anything that is someone else's. God knew that our inclination toward covetousness was so significant that he included it in the Ten Commandments. God knows that the psalmist, like everyone else, will find himself in situations and seasons that are simply not what he hoped for. God knew that the psalmist, just like every one of us sitting here, will find ourselves in seasons of life, in situations of life, where if you're honest, you're saying, this is not what I had in mind. This is not what I've been working towards. This is not what I've been sowing into. This isn't what my plan was. And we feel spiritually dry and stale. And the psalmist, God knew that the psalmist would struggle with such things. And he knew that he would fix his eyes on what he thought would be a solution. And when those solutions are not found in the word of God, they are inevitably self-centered. Like inclined to selfish gain. Maybe if my life was more like someone else's, then I'd actually be happy. Or if I had that thing, or if I had that experience, then I would finally be happy. Yet as a follower of God, the psalmist knows that God's testimonies are what's best for him. Here's the deal. He knows what's right, church. Crosspoint Fellowship, full of knowledge. You are, this church is a church that has been preached to and taught to and, and shepherded well for 15 years. And you guys are the most like, teachable group that any of us have ever encountered, you know what's right. I don't know that the general struggle for, for, a, for a follower of Christ at Crosspoint is that they don't know what the right thing to do is. I think the general struggle is the same thing as it is here with the psalmist, that I know what's right to do, and sometimes I just don't want to do it. That's where the, the psalmist was. He knows that God's testimonies are what's best for him. But in his heart, he's still inclined to covetousness. He's still inclined to the selfish gain. Essentially wanting what he wants when he wants it. Not only does he need God to incline his heart to God's plans, he needs God to incline his heart away from selfish gain, away from this innate desire to simply focus on me, to simply focus on getting whatever we think might make us happy. It's an honest moment for the psalmist, and I hope it is for us this morning, and it connects us to the next verse. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And then he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Now just imagine the context. Like, see what it says about this place before it says about this place? This is before social media. This is before any media. This is like 
when I'm walking through the marketplace where there's no electricity and turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. So now the psalmist, not only does he need God to incline his heart toward the testimonies of God, and not only does he need God to incline his heart away from selfish gain, but he needs God to incline his eyes, guys. He needs God to actually help him not use his eyes to look at worthless things. That's how deep the psalmist is getting. He's not saying, yeah, you know, we all struggle with what we look at sometimes. No, the psalmist is saying, no, my struggle as, as the writer of this psalm that holds high the design of God is to say, I need this kind of help. God, take these eyeballs and turn them away from looking at things that are worthless. Turn, literally turn them away. My glasses back on so I can see. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. It's incredibly easy for us to fix our eyes and subsequently our hearts on the wrong things. That's usually how it happens. Something enters into our heart and in our, in our minds through our eyes. We see something and then we want more of it, whatever it might be. It's easy, easy, easy for us to fix our eyes on, subs on things that get to our hearts. You are bombarded daily with inputs. You are bombarded hourly, maybe minutely, with things that are saying, Look at me. I'll make you happy. Look at me. You'll finally have fulfillment in your life. We are bombarded with such things, and it is so easy to look at worthless things. I think it looks like this. We get into our little bubbles, our life, the way that we have it, with our schedule, the way that we have it. We get into our little bubbles, and we fix our eyes on these worthless things. And when we say worthless things, what we're talking about is this, things that will not actually add value to your life. It's things that you think might add value to your life, but we're fixing our eyes on things that will not actually add any value to our life. I, I would encourage you to write that down in your notes. What are these worthless things? Things that don't actually add value to your being, to your life, to your family, to your church. I recently had an experience a couple weeks ago where God ripped me out of my little bubble and grabbed my attention because I didn't realize how self-centered and focused on just, you know, what might make me happy I had become. It was a Sunday afternoon a couple weeks ago. I was with my family at Whataburger in Plano between soccer games. That's what the Suttons do. We go to Whataburger between soccer games. That's generally a large part of our schedule. There's always soccer games. We, we find ourselves there on, on Saturdays and sometimes later on Sunday afternoons. And I was sitting there, and honestly, I was in my little bubble. I was on my phone, I was with my family, but I was on my phone, lo and behold, and um, honestly, just to be, you know, uh, transparent, I was struggling with some thoughts of futility, that I was just sitting there struggling with like, man, what, what are we doing today, what's the purpose, what, what am, you ever have just those days where you're like, what am I doing, am I doing anything, am I fulfilling any goodness around here, and I was just kind of in a bubble, and I was in kind of a funk. I'm sitting there. The restaurant was packed. We're having to wait too long for our food. There's people everywhere in this Whataburger, and we're trying to keep our two-year-old from burning the place down. We finally got our food, and you know how it is when you're like that, and you get your food, and you're like, you know what I want to do right now? I just want to eat my food in my bubble. Don't bother me. I want to eat the Whataburger while it's hot, and I was in my bubble. So we get our food. Lindsay's helping get all the kids with the food. 
I think I'd taken one bite and I was instantly ripped out of my bubble. I felt a heavy hand on my left shoulder. It scared the dog out of me, like it may have you just then. Heavy hand on my left shoulder. Um, this wasn't someone simply trying to get my attention. This was not a, excuse me, sir. This was a, turn around, dude. Freaky moment. I spent around not knowing what to expect, and I, I kind of have my guard up, because, I, I mean, it, I got ripped out of my little hamburger bubble that I was enjoying. And as I turned around, not sure what to expect, I kind of put my guard up, but what I saw looking at me was a man in panic, unable to breathe, giving me that universal sign for, I'm choking and you're up. He's like, (sighs) (sighs) and I'm like, I didn't know what I said. Afterwards, my wife told me that in that moment, I said, are you serious, dude? (laughs) I didn't know I said that. It was kind of awkward. But apparently in that moment of you know, sweet care for that man. I said, are you serious, dude? And he's going, oh! So I spun him around. He's a stocky, strong little dude built just like Jeff Ott. I didn't mean to call you a little dude. I meant stocky and strong. I love you, brother. He was your height. We'll just say that. I spun the dude around, and all that class that I had taken, you know, that tells you how to do those things, I was like, put the fist, grab the fist, Boom! And I hit that dude hard, and nothing came out. Well, in the training video, the thing comes out, and everyone high-fives and hugs, and (laughs) nothing came out. I'm like, oh, gosh. (laughs) Second time. (laughs) Nothing comes out. Guys, this was terrifying. My kids are starting to freak out. My wife has 911 pulled up on the phone. I hit him a third time. Harder than the previous two, and nothing came out. He is still choking, and he's starting to change colors. Finally, I realized the guy was strong, and I told him, I said, Hey, man, you got to stop flexing so I can help you. Give up. Kind of went limp. The boy number four, I was like, We're not getting to five. This guy's going to clip out. Boom! <laughs> I hit that dude. I'm sure I probably broke a couple ribs. I got him a foot up off the ground. (laughs) It comes out, and he turns around like, get away from me. Don't do that again. (laughs) But he breathed. He had that moment that you're hoping for where it's like, that's life. And he took a deep breath. He sat down. He was pale, but his color was starting to come back. I continued to ask him some questions, encourage him to drink some water. I was like, bro, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Kind of get settled. He calms down. I calm down. My blood pressure is through the roof in that moment. I'm like, I'm going to pass out. This is freaking me out too. It's like a crazy, crazy high tense moment. So we're sitting there and I'm like, are you okay? And he calms down and he gets his wits about him. And he goes, man, I just realized I was choking. I just realized I didn't have any air. And I looked around at this whole restaurant. And for whatever reason, I looked at you and I thought, that guy knows what I need. He can help me. I was like, well, I'm sorry you thought that, because I hit you like four times and probably broke a couple of your ribs, but you can breathe, so that's something. And then, get this, this is like this moment that I think anyone would, would hope for in a, in a situation like that. The guy looks at my kids and he says, hey kids, your dad saved my life, he's a hero. 
I'm like, I can't, what is, is someone videoing this? Am I, is this a joke? Was that guy even choking? Like, that's like something you see from a movie. Kid, your dad's a hero. I'm sitting there, I'm still freaking out. I'm, I'm terrified of the whole thing. Your dad's a hero. So it was a kind of a funny thing, uh, given how utterly surreal and terrifying the moment was. This moment that ripped me out of my little hamburger bubble where I was thinking thoughts of futility, why am I here? All of it taking no more than 20 or 30 seconds. It was a surreal moment where you're just kind of wondering, wow, did that just happen? Did that just actually happen here in the corner of this extremely crowded Whataburger? But that's not the craziest part of the story. He started choking again. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't. <laughs> the craziest part of the story was I suddenly had an awareness of the absolute packed restaurant full of people that were behind us. So we're in the corner here. We've had this violent exchange. He's chilling out. And all of a sudden, I th- I'm like, oh, my gosh. There's a restaurant full of people behind me. And I kind of slowly turned around, not sure what to expect, because it was, it, was it was a weird moment. I mean, it was terrifying. It was violent, all these things. And what I saw behind me was what was the craziest part of the whole thing. Everyone was looking at their phones. The whole restaurant. No one in the whole restaurant was aware of what had just happened. No one offered the guy any help. Like, literally, it was, like, that's all they were doing. No one knew what this guy was struggling with. The manager didn't come to ask if he was okay. No one offered to lend their services. No one was there with us. The craziest part of the whole morning was everyone was looking at their phones. Nobody said anything. Why? Because they were on their phones. Nobody was present in the situation because they had their eyes fixed on something somewhere else. And I was just kind of like, what? And just when I began to get a little bit judgy, I remembered I too was on my phone when he grabbed my shoulder and ripped me out of my little bubble. I got a little judgy, and I remembered I was on my phone as well. It was one of those profound moments where almost the very first thought I had was this. I wondered how often people around us are quietly suffering and we're on our phones. Now, guys, that might sound like a cheesy platitude to you. You might be like, oh, wow, big stretch there, Pastor. Guys, I'm telling you, it was a profound moment where I'm like, how many times are we sitting there just feet away from people who are quietly struggling, dying even, and we are on our phones, or we're distracted by any number of other things in our own little bubbles, just wanting what we think we want in the moment. As my family sat back down at the table, and we all calmed back down and started chewing our food really good, because (laughs) Henry's like, I don't want to choke. That was terrifying. Lindsay said, man, nobody was even affected in this restaurant. That's just bizarre. What a weird experience. They were distracted. And then she just mentioned this first. She said, talk about needing to have our eyes turned from worthless things. The psalmist was well aware of this tendency. 
this tendency to distract ourselves from our present reality by fixing our eyes on things that won't actually add any value to our lives. Let me say it again. The psalmist was clearly well aware of our tendency to distract ourselves from our present reality by fixing our eyes on things that won't actually add any value to our lives. But the psalmist didn't stop there. Rather than continuing to do what he knew was wrong, and rather than giving in to the inclinations of a wayward heart, the psalmist asked God to do what only God could do, to change his heart and to turn his eyes. The psalmist said, I can't do this, but he asked God to do what only God could do, to change his heart and to turn his eyes from the worthless things. When we turn from God's testimonies, we become self-oriented. But when we turn to God's testimonies, we become others-oriented. That's the way that it works. The more love of God that we understand, the less worried we are about ourselves. Guys, I have to learn this over and over again. I get so focused on how I'm doing or how I'm feeling or what's going on in my life or what can we handle today or what can we not handle today. But the more that the love of God comes in and the more that the testimonies of God find purchase in my heart, like the psalmist, like yours, the more we focus away from ourselves and we become others-oriented the way that Jesus was, the way that Jesus is. An inward-focused bubble of spiritual staleness is not a good place to stay. The psalmist knew this. He knew that nothing that he fixed his eyes on could bring happiness to his heart, even though his heart tried to convince him otherwise. The psalmist knew what was true. So what did he do? Well, he didn't just pull himself up by his bootstraps, church. In that moment, the psalmist didn't just say, you know what, i got to put my big boy pants on. Let's, let's get through this. The psalmist cried out for help. He cried out for help in the very thing that he could not muster on his own, in a moment that he certainly could not muster it. He could not will himself to hunger for God's word and God's ways. Sometimes we buy into that lie, right? We're like, okay, I just got to... Just got to get it. We kind of pep talk ourselves, smack ourselves around a little bit. Come on, just be obedient. And then we find ourselves, man, I'm just not feeling it. The psalmist understood that, but then he asked for help so that God could do what God would do. He could not will himself to hunger for God's word. He could not will himself to hunger for God's ways. His circumstances and his scenario were overcoming him. And so he knew that his vanity ran so deep it wasn't even just a heart issue. It was an eye issue. He was honesty about his vanity and how deep it ran and that he needed God to even turn his eyes from looking at what he shouldn't be looking at. And then the final appeal, it says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Give me life in your ways. His experience tells him that his heart will want the wrong things. Your experience should tell you that your heart will want the wrong things. Even after you are saved, you will struggle and your heart will want the wrong things. And his experience also tells him that those things will never lead to real lasting joy. But his experience also knows that God does not, that God, when he does what only God can do, that his heart can be inclined and that his eyes can be changed and that he can find a very real lasting joy in obeying God and in submitting to God's testimonies. So what does all of this have to do with Jesus? When you preach through a psalm, it's, it's, we can, 
if we're not careful, we can forget the part about Jesus. And so every sermon and every song begs the question, what does this have to do with Jesus? And you don't have to turn there, but I'd like to read from 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. You can, you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says this. His divine power, Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises, so that through them, listen to what it says, this is what happens in Jesus, so that through these promises that we have from God that we can lay hold of in moments that are desperate, so that through those promises, it says, you may become partakers of the divine nature. If, if you've ever had those struggles of the futility and, and that dark, desperate situation and wanting to be in your bubble, and someone says, you're a partaker of divine nature, in that moment, it's laughable, right? But this is the reality for us in Jesus, that you, through the promises that have been given and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, you may become partakers of the divine nature, the nature of God, partakers of that, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The psalmist sought escape from the corruption that came from sinful desire, and we too should seek escape the right way so that we might be partakers of the divine nature. There's no way to become partakers of the divine nature. There's no way for us sitting here this morning to become people with hearts inclined to God's testimonies on our own. There is no way to do this on your own. There is no way to say a right prayer in a right way and put a good plan together and on your own become partakers of the divine nature of our Lord. Our sin separates us from God and makes our hearts inclined to fleshliness and worldliness and selfish gain. This is why God sent his son into the world to live the perfect life and die in our place on the cross. This is the gospel and sometimes in those seasons, those deserts, we become stale and hardened to the gospel even. Like, yeah, he came and he died on the cross. No church family. God sent his son to take your place on the cross. The wages of sin is death. And as a bunch of sinners, that means what we deserve to get paid is death. But thanks be to God who in Christ makes us partakers of a divine nature. Jesus conquered death so that we could find forgiveness for our sins. He didn't conquer death so that we would continue to carry them around and feel guilty about our struggle. Our Lord didn't conquer death so that we could sit and act like, like full of guilt and shame because we don't have it all together. Jesus didn't conquer death so that a guy like the psalmist could sit there and feel guilty and shameful that he was struggling. He did it so that we could have access to our loving Father who will actually help us. Every day, every moment, Every struggle, we should be crying out to him in every one of them. All who profess Christ and follow Christ can be forgiven of their sins and given a new nature with new hearts. In Jeremiah 31, it says, uh, it prophesies of the new covenant, and it says, your heart of stone will be replaced with a heart of flesh, and you will be filled with the Spirit, and you will have a new way of being able to, to be inclined in your hearts to God. And in Jesus Promise fulfilled. We can actually experience this. 
We can be forgiven and given new natures and new hearts. We can actually become partakers of the divine nature if we, like the psalmist, will do this, ask God for his help. Don't let your guilt and shame move you away from God. Take the guilt and shame and lean into the, the sin problem and take it to God. So I've got four very simple application points this morning. Very simple. Number one, ask God for help. It might be obvious, but write it down. Write it in your notes. Consider where you need to do this, what areas of your life you need to take before God. Ask God for help when the inclination of your heart is wrong. When you're struggling with sin, ask God for help. Quit trying to hide from him behind a tree like Adam and Eve. Quit trying to cover your own sin. Quit trying to get everything together so that your life is good, and then you can go to God who will approve of you. He approves of you because of his son, not because you got your life together. But in his son, he will help you get your life in order. He will help you to be inclined toward what you should be inclined toward as one who bears his name. So number one is ask God for help when the inclinations of your heart are wrong. Quit carrying around the guilt and shame. Give that to our Lord. The second application point is simple. Be specific. How am I going to apply this psalm? If I start singing this psalm in my heart, how am I going to apply this to my life? I think the way to apply it is to be specific. What I mean is name the specific way in which your heart is wrongly inclined and ask God for help. It's, sometimes we feel a little bit better about ourselves when we speak in generalities, right? Lord, please help me to not be a bad person. Lord, help me to not struggle with things. That's vague. Everybody does that. It's sort of like when a bunch of guys get together and we confess our sins. And it's like, yeah, I struggle with pride and anger. And everyone else struggles with pride and anger. And it's like the safest thing to confess because we know that everybody struggles with it. In this moment, if you're, bring, if you're coming into the psalm, be specific. Take the specific struggles to God. God, I'm bitter. God, I'm bitter. Change my heart to desire to make sure that bitterness does not take root in my life and defile many the way that your word promises it will. Be specific. God, I'm angry. Incline my heart toward not being angry. God, I'm sad and depressed. Incline my heart toward unshakable joy that exists in your ways. God, I'm unstable. I feel unstable. Incline my heart toward the sureness and the stability that is found in belonging to you. God, help me to lay hold of the promise that you will never leave me, that you will never forsake me, and that in all things, even my weaknesses, your strength is made perfect. Lay hold of the promises of God and be specific as you ask him for help. The third application point is a question that we should ask, and it's this. Is anyone around us quietly suffering? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. It's a matter of if we will help. It's a matter of if our eyes can be fixed in such a way that we can help those that are around us that are struggling. Is anyone around you quietly suffering or in need of help and you need to put your phone down and help them? You need to get off their computer and help them. You need to quit focusing here and move in an other-oriented man, others-oriented manner to them. Is anyone around you need help? And here's the deal. It might not be a stranger choking at Whataburger. It might be your spouse. 
It might be your spouse. I can't tell you how many times Lindsay and I find ourselves at the end of the day. Hey, how was your day? Good. Cool. How, how was your day? Good. And we're on our phones. It's so stupid. It is the most ridiculous thing that we're on our phones, but guess what? They're right there. And it might be that there's a struggle in your marriage or with your spouse, and you just need to eliminate the distractions and lean into them and see how can I help you in this struggle. It might be your children. For some of us, our children might have their eyes turned towards worthless things. They might be spending all their days on tablets and cell phones and everything else just being distracted from the homework that they don't want to do or the chores that they don't want to attend to. And you might need to help them. It might be a friend. It might be a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Just ask the Lord, and he will show you. Guys, I'm telling you, I had an experience this week where I sat down Tuesday to put the sermon together, and guess what? I wasn't feeling it. I'm sitting here looking at this, inclining my heart to your testimonies. God, what am I even supposed to preach? Why are we preaching Psalm 1 night? What happened? Where are we at today, God? And I just wasn't feeling it. And so the Lord said, Scott, perhaps you should pray the psalm. Perhaps you should ask me what you need to focus on. And it was really interesting because he, he had me pray for someone that I wasn't thinking about at all. He said, pray for that guy. Okay. And I prayed for that guy. And two days later, that guy asked me to go to lunch. Uh-oh. God's doing something. And then we're sitting at lunch. I said, hey, man, on Tuesday? It's really weird. God asked me to pray for you like three times. He inclined my heart to pray for you like three times in one day. It's amazing. And uh, I just want to let you know. And then you asked me to lunch, so I felt like I needed to tell you that you're being prayed for. And he was like, Tuesday was not a good day. I am marveling that God put me on your heart. Guys, you don't muster those kinds of things. I was, I was in a bad mood on Tuesday. I was not feeling it on Tuesday. I didn't want to preach on Sunday on Tuesday. I didn't want to work on the sermon. But in asking for the inclination of the heart, God led me to someone who needed help. So just trust God with that. Is anyone around you struggling? Is anyone quietly suffering? And you need to help them. And here's the fourth one. The fourth one is one that I really want to make sure we don't miss. Marvel, church family. Marvel. Marvel that our God actively does this. Marvel that our God actually helps us. Marvel that God does not smite us and shame us and overwhelm us with guilt in our struggles, but that our God invites us to be honest about the inclinations of our heart. He says, let your requests be made known to, uh, to me. He allows us to ask for our hearts to be changed by him. And then marvel, church family, that he actually changes us. All the time. It's a lifelong endeavor of sanctification. And every day, all the time, he changes his people to be more like Jesus. He inclines our hearts away from that selfish gain. He inclines our heart away from our arrogance, away from our self-centeredness, and he actually changes us. Church family, please do not become a jaded, futile-thinking people who think that God doesn't change anyone. That motivates our message. That lights a fire under the evangelism that we're supposed to be about because Jesus changes people. So just in these two little verses in this psalm, please take time this week to marvel at your Lord. He actually changes our hearts. In those moments where we feel completely desperate, like I can't do it, 
I got nothing else to muster. I, can't, I got no bootstraps. He changes you. He loves you enough to intercede, to turn your eyes, and to incline your heart, and he changes us. Our God is incredibly good, and he changes us to love the things that he loves and to love the things that our Savior loves. Please do not go about your day not marveling that that is actually happening with all of us. As we prepare to take the supper, um, the supper is an exercise of trust. The supper is an exercise where God tells us to do this weekly and we do it weekly. And we don't always maybe feel like doing it weekly, but we do. And the deal is, is it's a trust. It's having our hearts inclined to what God says we should focus on and remember. And in 1 Corinthians, it says this about the supper that we're about to take. How is God inclining your heart? Church family, please don't, please don't pack up and check out. This supper is really important. How is God inclining your heart as we prepare for this supper? Let's go to his word and ask him to help us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. How do you need to be remembering Jesus this morning? In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How do you need to be anticipating the return of Jesus this morning? How does the, the, the inevitable until he comes, the inevitable return of Jesus, the inevitable reality that the next time he takes this supper will be with us in eternity, how does that affect your day to day? Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Church family, I want to encourage you as we sing, sing honestly. We're going to sing Come Thou Fount. There's a line in Come Thou Fount that says, "Let my." Uh, it talks about a fetter and how I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. It's, it's, it's the exact nature of what the psalmist has been saying. Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take it, seal it for the, for the courts above. Fetter me, bind me, keep me. That's what we're about to sing. And I want to encourage you, as we sing, to be honest about the inclinations of your heart. And in the moment of being honest about the inclinations of your heart, do your best to pray to be others-oriented as well. Ask God to use you however he sees fit as he inclines you toward his testimonies. I'm going to pray and we'll distribute the elements. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. And I pray that as a church, we'd be very honest this morning and that we would pray with the psalmist to incline our hearts to your testimonies, not to selfish gain, that we, would, that we would desire for you to turn our eyes from worthless things, that we may have life in your name. Lord, this supper is a, is a profound expression of the life that we have because of your body broken, your blood spilled to pay for our sins. And so, Lord, in this moment, I pray that we would take the supper rightly as a people, that we would take it humbly, that we would take it full of expectancy even, that you can change us, and that there would be no pride, no arrogance, but that we, like the psalmist, would lower our guard and be vulnerable and humble and honest about the help that we need from you. Lord, we have 
no hope apart from you. And we take this supper in light of that. In Jesus' name.